You're listening to What the History, a podcast where two nerds talk about some awesome, crazy, random stuff you probably don't remember learning about, but you're going to now. Hey, nerds, it's Sarah and Casey here with another episode about a badass babe um, and another opportunity for me to avoid saying things in another language as much as possible. Dude, I literally uh, knew you were going to say that. Like, right. off the bat, I was like, she's 1,000% going to avoid saying as much as possible. Oh, yeah. As much as possible. I do not like that I'm very bad at it. So, Meanwhile, I one- put every name in there because I just love to butcher it. <laughs> yeah. Casey asked if I mentioned, like, we're going to talk about a woman who part of what she did was being a, a she was a playwright. And she asked if I put a certain play in there. And I was like, yes, it's the only one I mentioned by name because I'm over here trying <laughs> to not mention any of them by name. Yeah, you get to listen to me butcher another set of European names. This time it's not <laughs> German, though. It's French, which no, is equally abhorrent we for did, me. So. We did also just spend like three minutes before looking up how to pronounce the subject's name. <laughs> like we got here, yeah. like, how do you say this lady's name? Um, her name, based on how YouTube tells us to say it. Why is my microphone all the way over here? That was dumb. Hopefully you can hear me on that. There we uh, go. <laughs> could you not hear me before? No, I could hear you totally oh, okay. fine, but now you're nice and loud for your French pronunciation Perfect. of this name. Yeah, yeah fucking great. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk about our friend Olympe de Gouges, which yeah. is apparently how it's pronounced, not Olympe de Gouges like it looks. Yeah, I mean, Sarah commented on like a Facebook post with like a bunch of like memes or like Twitter things of of this woman, and yeah, I was like, oh shit, what a cool badass babe! And I actually even had a coworker that was like, hey, I saw your comment on that. She's so cool. I'd never um, heard of her. Me neither. And it's funny because I teach the. I mean, I I say teach very loosely because it's very difficult right. to teach the French Revolution in like three days. So, but yeah, I teach. You it just watch late honestly. No, because that's the second French Revolution. I have to teach them the first one. It's bullshit. Oh. Otherwise, I would just do Les Mis. Boring. Flat out. I'd be yeah. like, everyone, meet my friend Jean Valjean. He's here to entertain you for the next two hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about um, Olympe's, I guess, life and her experiences. Yeah. And Sarah's going to talk about some of her work. And... um. Yeah, we're going to just jump right in. So I just lost my notes. Please give me yeah. one moment. We are <laughs> thriving today. Okay. Thriving. All right. We're here. It's a Friday. We're doing we're great. We're ready. Okay, so <clears throat> it's Friday. We are just ready to go. I feel like that uh, Finding Nemo quote. You know what I mean? When she's like, the sun is shining, the tank oh, is clean, yeah. and we are going <gasps> to, the tank is clean. Like, that's yes. where I'm at right now. Okay, so let's see. So on May 7th, 1748, Olympe de Gouges was born as Marie Gouges in Montauban, Carcay in southwestern. Gouges. What a last name. Gouges. I know. Gouges. It kind of made, made me think of like um like Goob, like Goob from okay. again, just full of Disney references. Uh, yeah. Ethan Robinsons. Have you ever seen that? I think so. Yeah, he's like he turns. Into I mean, I know villain. the name, but I don't know yeah. if I've seen it. Yeah, so that's like what I'm thinking of. Um, I don't know where this place is. It said like it's now modern day blank. France. I know, but like I don't fucking know what that is. Um, <laughs> France is such a weird thing for me. I don't know. Like I've been to France and I still couldn't fucking tell you like anything Fair. about France, except that they hate us. Um, 
I mean, also fair. So I don't blame them. So her family was categorized as being a part of the petite bourgeoisie, which is basically a social class that was like small scale, small scale merchants and quote the semi autonomous peasantry, which is basically like modern day examples of small business owners, minority shareholders, franchise owners, lawyers working in small partnerships, like kind of like middle class, perhaps just a tad bit upper middle class um yeah so her mother was Anne Olympe Moisset the daughter of a lawyer oh man I'm like sweating as I'm saying these names um and her father was quote declared to be Pierre Guse who is a master butcher and Anne's husband the reason why he was quote declared to be is because there was kind of some like intrigue as to whether or not this was actually Marie slash Olomp's um, actual father. So he didn't I don't know why the fuck this matters and I did research this and I truly couldn't find anything but apparently Pierre didn't sign the papers at the baptism because he was absent. So I don't know if that means like he's like nah this ain't my baby or like he just was like oh shit I'm busy that day. Like, I can't be there for my daughter to get baptized, which was, like, a big fucking deal then. And so he just, like, wasn't present, but he didn't sign the papers, and I don't know. So the reason why I bring this up is because apparently um, Anne's father tutored a man named Jean-Jacques Lefranc. Oh shit. I actually have a stereotype name, though. Literally, I, dude, I just thought of that as I was saying it. In one go, like I hadn't actually said it out loud. Like, what a French ass name! That's like, like so so French. It's every John Jacques, and then his last La name Franc. is literally like France or like La France. <laughs> I don't know if it's La France yeah. or La Franc, but it's probably La France. Well, either way, it's a joke. Either way, it's it's Jean Jacques of France, like basically mm-hmm. <laughs> super French, super French of oh, so France. So isn't that just like John Jack of France? Like, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, exactly. So he was the Marquis de Pompignan, which is a big deal, apparently. Don't know what the fuck it is okay. either. Um, and pretty much everyone in the area knew that Lefranc was Anne's lover and therefore probably the adulterous father of Marie or Alomp. Um Okay, so he was, we think, the biological. Right. Yeah. That's father. like that's the vibe I got. Um, because her mother's status also gave her the opportunity to like experience a bourgeoisie education so Mm -hmm. for for me that was kind of just like she got the basics in reading writing literature language um it sounds really high class but it's actually really not um higher class probably would have been something more along the lines of like politics and stuff like that but she was probably just exposed to like the basics of like you're a girl you can read and you should be Mm -hmm. grateful like that's pretty much probably it um so there's really not too much about her as a child. I really couldn't find anything. Um, but she was married really young. So in 1765, she was actually forced to get married to a caterer named Louis Aubrey. Um, and there was no explanation in why she was forced to like marry him. Um, she even like writes it in her in her like semi-autobiographical novel uh, called Memoir de Madame de Valmont contre la famille de flaucor yeah so basically i don't know what that says madam no memoir of madam valmont 
with the La Famille de Flaucor. I don't know what the fuck that is. I should have taken more French. Um, so basically in this, this way, it is so uh, much more fun. Contra- the contrary means against. Against. Oh. So. I want to put the whole thing in Google Translate. Yeah, you gotta. Oh, man. We're going to have some fun Google searches for this one. Oh, yeah. I'm going to leave this open. <laughs> Mem- <laughs> so memoir of Madame, Madame of Belmont against the de Flacourt family. Oh. So basically her memoir is like, fuck these people. That sounds pretty much on par with who this woman was, honestly. Exactly. I like it. Yeah, I'm here for it. Um, So in this fuck this family semi-autobiographical novel, she writes, (laughs) she writes, quote, I was married to a man I did not love and who was neither rich nor well-born. I was sacrificed for no reason that could make up for the repugnance I felt for this man, quote. So like girl does not fucking like this dude. I don't even necessarily know if it was like anything in particular. I think it was just kind of like. She was pretty. She was smart. Her mom taught her well. And then she was like, okay, you're getting married. Bye. And she was like, what the fuck is the reason for this? Yeah. Um. So fortunately, question mark, question mark, her husband dies like a year or two yeah. later. Like they're not married very long. Um. And she did have a son with him. Uh, her son's name, I believe, was also Pierre. And they moved to Paris in 1770 uh, to live with her sister. And when she moves, she declares that she shall never marry again. She calls the institution of marriage, quote, the tomb of trust and love, quote, (laughs) which makes me laugh and also makes me really want to cry. (laughs) I mean, fair for you. I just am like, oh, that's kind of depressing. Like, (laughs) first year of marriage has been so much fun in a pandemic. Um, That tomb part is really, like, sticking out to me. Fair. Um, so this is also when she's going to change her name to Olympe de Gouge. Um, and I know that you'll talk, like, about that being a pen name, but I think that's actually yeah. just the name she starts to go by. Yeah, it's, like, I saw the term pen name, but it seems to be she just takes it on as her name. Right. Like, people are just like, oh, Olympe, bonjour. Like a, like <laughs> Would you like I a croissant? Like- it's like how I feel like Lady Gaga's friends don't call her Stephanie. It's I, one of those. You don't think so? I don't. I know her family does, but I feel like people call her Lady Gaga like in real life. Yeah. Okay. That's probably fair. Oh, that's got to be so weird, though. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. You heard it here first, folks. Lady Gaga is the oh. new Olympe de Gouge. Yes. De Gouge. <laughs> de Gouge. It even sounds like Gaga. No, it doesn't. It's just a G. Uh, okay, so she's in Paris. She's living the dream. She's, you know, singing Perry holds the key to your heart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while she's there, she starts a relationship with a wealthy man named Jacques Beatrix de Rosier. Uh, and he mm-hmm. eventually proposes to her. But like I said oh. before, she ain't about that married life. So she actually refuses <laughs> refuses his marriage proposal. Um, but despite the rejection, she and uh, Jacques actually stay pretty close even throughout the French Revolution. Um, and he likes her so much that he is actually going to help her establish a theater company in Paris, um, which I wrote this specifically. Having a man help you establish a theater company somewhere also feels like my ultimate dream besides being gifted with a library circa Beauty and the Beast yeah. because, like, holy shit, your girl loves theater. Um yeah. 
I can't imagine how hard it must be to run a fucking theater company, but like, mm, it's but still so cool. If this man wants to pay. Right. And like, you've got like a wealthy, maybe handsome Jacques and he's going to like give you some money. So yeah, I'm here for it. Uh, so um, Olympe also frequently attended the infamous Enlightenment salons of Paris, which sounds like, well, what do you, I mean, do you know what the salons are? Yeah, because we've talked about them not as much in Paris, but they're like similar in other places in Europe where it's like where women go to basically have intellectual discussions in secret. Yeah, so, yeah, it's actually pretty cool because the Enlightenment salons in Paris aren't secret and they're not just women, which is really fucking cool. cool. So there is this very weird like juxtapositioning of progression when it comes to the Enlightenment in Mm -hmm. terms of women in France. Like, the women of France right before the revolution and, like, during the revolution itself are, like, pretty major fucking powerhouses. And, like, like, there's this whole, like, actually, we should do this as an episode. That would be so cool. Like, the fishwives march on Versailles. Mm -hmm. Like, these fucking women, like, come and they're like, my kids are fucking starving. They, like, cut off one of Marie Antoinette's servants' heads and, like, throw it on a pike and they're like... You see this bitch? Like, we're going to do this to you if you don't give us fucking money and whatever. Like, they are hardcore. Um, They have, like, a pretty... I wouldn't say a big role, but I think they have a significant role in the French Revolution. So, there were a lot of famous writers and future politicians that um, would, like, frequent these salons. And she was usually invited to the ones that were held by Madame de Montesson and the Comtesse de Beauharnais, which... um, it's only significant because they were also playwrights. So she kind of promoted as much like female work as possible, especially mm-hmm. when it was like, you know, when it came to her plays uh, that she yeah. produced. So I'm going to hand it over to you to kind of go through some of her major work. And then, um, yeah, I mean, if I hear something that I have stuff on too, I can always interject. Yeah. But yeah. So like we talked about when she began writing, she started using the pen name of Olympe de Gouges, and it said that it was kind of to better fit in among the upper class, right? Marie didn't feel like a very highbrow name at the time. And so she took Olympe, which was her mother's middle name, I learned in Casey's segment, and started using that as her pen name. <laughs> it's like a, the more you know, like, do-do-do. <laughs> Right. I was like, oh, okay. I can use that. It all adds up. Mm -hmm. But she wrote kind of everything. She did like public letters and pamphlets. She did novels. And she also wrote plays. Um, She started signing all her public letters with Citoyen, which was the feminine version of citizen. So French is one of those really gendered languages where most nouns Mm. have like a female version and a male version. Right. Okay. the using the French term for citizen itself was a big thing because kind of before the revolution, there were no citizens. Everyone was a mm. subject of the king. Yes. And so there wasn't yep. really this concept. And then like during and after the revolution, it became a thing for a male to call himself a citizen. And that was like a, a big progressive deal in a sense, because they hadn't had that before. Right. But she was like, fuck that. I'm going to use the feminine version of it. And so that's how she signed a lot of her public letters and more political stuff. I love how she, like, just straight up did not give a shit really quickly on. Oh, super quick. You know what I mean? Like, she's yeah. th- so she's born in 48, and this is, like, like she's maybe, like, in her 30s. Yeah. 
which is like cool as hell. Yeah, she was just not having it. So she wrote over the course of her lifetime over 30 plays. Most of them had some sort of like socially critical theme behind them. So As does of, all theater. <laughs> yeah. Some of them were published. Some of them never went anywhere. But later after she dies in the 1790s, somebody seizes all of her papers. And so they find a list of almost 40 plays that she wow. had, like, had record of. So not all of those had ever been put on or published, but she had them completed. Right. So she obviously, I guess not obviously, because we haven't talked about this much yet. She wrote about <laughs> like the rights of women. She mm -hmm. also wrote about the slave trade, divorce and marriage. She wrote against debtors prison. She wrote for children's rights and about government schemes like against the unemployed. So she was just explicitly a very political person. And she saw plays as a vehicle for getting this political message out especially among some of these like upper class people she was kind of mingling with um in 1788 she publishes two things so there's a pamphlet that is titled reflections on blacks um this was when you used blacks and it didn't it didn't mean you were racist it meant yeah you weren't. <laughs> i saw this too this <laughs> yeah no it was like yeah i, I had a hard time because like some of these things like, even just in French, feel, like, wrong to say. Right. But it's, like, at yeah. the time, that was the more progressive version of the word. Right, which is it, so interesting. It's but, so yeah. weird. Yeah. So she wrote that pamphlet, and then she also wrote a play that kind of went with it called L'Esclavage des Noirs. Noirs, you again, means You did so blacks. good with that. Oh, Why are you so you. scared? I thought I you did so beautifully. I've, I've always, like, hated, like... That was why I never did well in foreign language in school because I like oh. not like to say it out loud. Say magnifique. But that was so beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. I thought you were telling me to say magnifique. So that's how we're going. <laughs> First thing I was like, what did I fucking say? <laughs> did I say say? Like there, there's this TikTok. So it's different. There's this TikTok that, like, this guy does. It's so funny. He does this, like, here he takes, like, a word and he, like, pronounces it, like, in whatever language. And then he automatically goes to German. And it always <laughs> sounds so brutal in German. Oh, and I always funny. laugh. It's very good. I'm sorry. I, I digress. That. No, that's okay. Um, So she wrote this play. And it was about the slave trade, pretty explicitly. Mm -hmm. And she wrote it alongside Marquis de Condorcet. And I'm learning that Marquis is not as fancy of a title as I once thought it was. I think everyone was just a Marquis. Yeah. Um, but like Lafayette. Was... Exactly. <laughs> yeah. He was one of France's earliest really public opponents of slavery. So he's really well known as being like a radical at the time on this. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so she writes it with him. And in the play, there's a scene where a slave master... This is the term used in the play, right? A slave mm -hmm. master. The slave mm -hmm. master is the character. I'm going to stop saying that word. He actually... So he <laughs> utters a prayer for freedom mm -hmm. rather than the character who is enslaved saying it. And that was considered like a big deal at the time. It was okay. one thing to kind of portray a slave as wanting freedom and advocating for it. And that was kind right. of acceptable. But to have the like enslaver say it 
and be mm. against it was something I hadn't really been seen before. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense because I that would be yeah. radical because like you would expect that one who is enslaved would be praying to get out of it because it's such an right. abhorrent institution. But you wouldn't expect the person who's profiting from it to like pray for it. Right. To, I think it was like to realize it, you know, they were showing someone who had previously supported it learning. And so her goal here, she drew a lot of parallels between cl- colonial slavery and the political oppression in France, kind to trying to kind of make people connect ideals they might have held during the revolution to the idea of slavery. Mm-hmm. And so there's a scene where one of the, the protagonists who is enslaved explains, you know, that the French have to gain their own freedom before they can deal with slavery. And so it's kind of tying them together. Yeah. And I think the thing I saw too was like um, the fact that the, cause this is around the same time as the Haitian revolution. And so like the fact that the, the people of Haiti were like openly fighting against and were able to obtain their freedom. Like mm-hmm. that was like a, that was like a big part of it, I think too. Yeah. And so I actually saw it was, it wasn't that uncommon to refer to slavery as political oppression. Like that was kind of a common line of thinking, but it was really unusual to actually call for abolition, which seems kind of like hypocritical to me, but I guess at the yeah. time people were like, yeah, it, it's not great. We get that. But saying right. you wanted to abolish it. Yeah. Which does remind me of like kind of founding father stuff where you would hear the founding fathers who we know had a bunch of slaves and sucked say like, oh, slavery is bad. And we know that we just can't get rid of it because it's like the backbone of the country or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it's, it's the only way like that, that we can survive. It, that's exactly what it is. I, I would yeah. agree with you. Um, And so she would openly attack the notion that human rights were a reality at all in revolutionary France, right? Mm -hmm. People would say, well, we've achieved this and that and like stuff is better. And she'd be like, yeah, but there are still slaves. So no. (laughs) Um, Yeah. There's a quote from the play and it's again, one of the protagonists who is a slave says, quote, the power of one master alone is in the hands of a thousand tyrants who trample the people underfoot. The people will one day burst their chains and claim its all rights under natural law. It will teach the tyrants just what a people united by long oppression and enlightened by sound philosophy can do. So, like, mm. not subtle. This was yeah, basically no. her message. Um, and so that's one of her more well-known plays. She published in 1788 her first political brochure. And it was a manifesto. It has kind of two names historically it was called letter to the people but it's also been known as project Mm -hmm. for a patriotic fund um and i left those in english mostly so we knew what they meant because they're like important titles i promise (laughs) um and then the next year she published (laughs) patriotic remarks and this was basically her setting out like an agenda it was proposals like straight up policy proposals for social security Government subsidized care for the elderly and institutions for homeless children, building hostels for people that were unemployed, and the introduction of a jury system. That's so crazy she, how like yeah. radical that was for that time period. Like right. America is still getting its shit together and like yeah. just formulating a lot of these things. And like the fact that this was already like 
she was already kind of manifesting these things is so insane. Yeah. And she also in that called for women to, quote, shake off the yoke of shameful slavery. Mm hmm. Um, that same year, she wrote another long series of pamphlets, kind of each one about a different social concern. So there was one actually about illegitimate children and how they should be treated, which is mm. interesting in light of the stuff you talked about. Yeah. Um, but basically, she advanced public debate with these. And a lot of them are issues that would later be picked up by feminists. No one was really considered a feminist at the time. It wasn't like a title or a movement on its own. Mm -hmm. And so some people call her like one of the first feminists in France. Yeah. Because a lot of the first time you see these policies and issues in writing is through her. Mm -hmm. But her most famous writing is the Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen. So in 1791, King Louis, whatever the fuck King Louis we were on by then. Uh, 16th. 16th. Yeah, I guess I do have it there. But like there's too many of them. <laughs> um, so he published or he didn't publish. He ratified the French Constitution mm -hmm. and dedicated it to his wife, Marie Antoinette. LOL. But just like uh, some other constitutions you might have heard of, it likes to say men sometimes huh. instead of people. Weird. And but aren't so, all people men, Sarah? At least the ones that matter. No. Fucking ridiculous. So she <laughs> publishes this Declaration of the Rights of Women that kind of comes out to be like, okay, so you're not going to put women in it. So like, I'll just do it. Mm -hmm. And she said her hope was to expose the failures of the French Revolution when it came to gender equality, that it, you know, didn't really include that and people acted like they had won. She didn't really, there was no real like feminist impact on the revolution. And so she was kind of addressing that. Yeah. Um, the French constitution was the beginning of this like short-lived constitutional monarchy and the idea of a status-based citizenship. So that's mm -hmm. where that citizen term became popular. But yep. citizens at the time were defined as men over 25 who were, quote, independent and had paid the poll tax. So <laughs> they, I guess that meant, like, didn't live with their parents. I don't know. <laughs> oh. There'd be a lot of people who wouldn't count as men today then. Yeah. And so under that, citizens had the right to vote. So these men had the right to vote. But there was actually, like, a two-tiered thing within that. So every citizen could vote, but there was also another level of citizenship that made you eligible to eligible to run for public office. So okay. not everyone who could vote could run. And women, by definition, got no rights of active citizenship. Um, and it wasn't just women. So men who couldn't pay the poll tax, children, which that one seems fine, but children, <laughs> um, any domestic servants, rural day laborers, slaves... Jews, actors, and hangmen. Oh my god. Hangmen? Oh, I was I was with actors here. I'm like, and fuck the actors. Like, let me just like say something. If you're a fucking hangman, you're probably at a low point in your life anyway. So like Fair. now you're not a fucking person. Yeah, now you can't even vote. <laughs> yeah, no, you can kill all the political opponents, but y'all can't be a person in this government. Like, what? Right. Oh my god. Um, and so basically her argument, which is accurate, is that like the Constitution, it did dismantle the old regime, but it didn't go far enough. And like basically it just was like, I mean, if 
like the basics of the French Revolution is that 98% of the population were being controlled by 2% of the population. Mm -hmm. And like there was a really big portion of the population that was living in like just complete fucking shit conditions like poverty and like hunger and just awful, awful shit for like a lot of reasons, not just the mismanagement of the government, but like the way that the structure that's now being set up is very much classist, which I think is super interesting that it's like, well, we want to give some people equality, but like, right. Not if you're poor it's like, or, well, you know, okay. We're going from 2% controlling 98 to like 30, 70. We're like, well, that's yes. better, right? It's better, but it's <laughs> like, yes, more. exactly. Which is, Basically, I think what like, causes is- such a huge revolution is like, there's such fucking chaos and like yeah. how it should happen. Yeah. Basically where they're at is like Joe Biden won the primary and they're like, well, I guess that's better. <laughs> We'll just be <laughs> fine with this. I guess for now. that's better. Like, sure. It could have been worse. <laughs> oh. oh, that's like the tagline for the French Revolution. Exactly. It could have been worse. <laughs> yeah. It was still really bad. So the the declaration itself, I'm obviously not gonna like read the entire thing. But no, do it. Do it in the- French. I'm no, just kidding. I'm going to go through the outline kind of because she basically takes the actual um, like ratified version and just translates it into like article one. You said this. I say this. Mm-hmm. Um, some people have described it actually as like almost a parody because of that, even though it's a very serious document. Right. Like she's taking it and just translating it. So it starts with a call to action with one of the most famous quotes from it being man are you capable of being fair a woman is asking at least you will allow her that right tell me what gave you the sovereign right to oppress my sex so she's just like here to fight yo shots fired fuck that's awesome and she talks in there she's like you should go look at animals in nature because they aren't sexist so like what the fuck's wrong with us like women run the fucking world yeah like the wild so yeah unreal I'm sorry, keep going. No, you're good. So then there's the preamble, which she basically takes the exact same language and adds women instead of men. Um, But then does also call women, quote, the sex that is superior in beauty as it is encouraged during the pains of childbirth. So, (laughs) cool. (laughs) We should probably do a quick (laughs) trigger warning. This is very gendered. This is very, like, you know. It's like 17 something or other. Right, right. It doesn't make it right. It just makes it what it is, I guess. She had some, like, other things to worry about, I guess. (laughs) So Yeah, yeah. And she um, wasn't perfect. Like, she was, like, a very good example in some ways of, like, a white feminist. But I'll talk about that later. Sorry, keep going. You're good. So it goes through, then, the 17 articles of the Declaration. The majority of them are just her taking whatever it says about men and changing it. So, like, she literally changes men are born and remain free and equal in rights. She changes it to woman is born free and remains equal to man in rights. Most of it she does that and is just either adding the word woman or converting it to the word women. Um, But there are some that specifically call out. So, like, Article 4, for example. Article 4 is talking about the right to oppose tyranny in general. Okay. Like, like the basically right to have a revolution. Mm -hmm. But she turns it into, like, the only limit to the exercise of natural rights of women is the perpetual tyranny that man opposes to it. Okay, yeah. 
So she's some of them she's making very specifically about like a woman's right to do something specific. Right. And then some of them she doesn't change and just adds the word women. Mm-hmm. Um, because like it's it's the same fight. She's like, we're not against like yeah, we're with she, you in this whole tyrannical bullshit, but yeah, you know. Um, one of the kind of big ones where the quote gets circulated and like handed out and that kind of thing is that in Article Ten, she basically draws attention to a law that says women were fully punishable in courts, but that they didn't have equal rights. So she says, quote, women have the right to mount the scaffold. Then they must also have the right to mount the speaker's rostrum. So mm. basically, if you can kill us, you have to let us like speak in court. Oh, that's so bone chillingly poetic. Yeah. I love um, and hate that. There's even an article where she specifically writes out that women should be allowed to identify the father of her child. So again, I think there's a little bit of like daddy issues happening here oh wow yeah yeah because Uh, it was so easy to be like you know that's mm -hmm. my baby daddy and they're like no (laughs) it's like no but like you're the only dude i've ever slept with so like you definitely are the baby daddy they're like you are just a whore woman so like women got totally fucked with that literally yeah yep um so then she she finishes up and then there's like a postscript to the declaration um where she kind of does the call of like what is it women wake up the toscan of reason and is resounding throughout the universe acknowledge your rights so that part's kind of a call to action so she publishes this and she's long said that like when she publishes these political writings one thing is that she's publishing as a woman she's always like very big on it's from a woman's perspective i want everyone to understand that Mm-hmm. And it's her way of kind of entering the public sphere and speaking. She says directly to the royals and politicians, like from the fringe of society as she mm-hmm. sees it. Um, but the pamphlets themselves, like those don't usually make it. Like King Louis is not sitting there reading these pamphlets. Um, she's using <laughs> Yeah, he's not to- the queen in Bridgerton where he's like, what right. the fuck is this? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she's using them to stir up public anger and like, advocates for the cause so that's what she's mm-hmm. doing with this as well yeah um but as you know the politics of the revolution kind of go on she never really became like a major actor in the political realm i think the way she expected but she still yeah. continued to to write letters and to ultimately write this declaration offering what she saw as like advice to the political establishment mm-hmm. um And really throughout all of her writings, her kind of mindset and proposals and what she thought a political order should look like stayed the same. Like she was pretty consistent throughout all of these writings, throughout all of her life. Yeah. Um, And obviously a lot of this is focused on women. Um, But like I talked about, she also had things like social security and um, housing for the unemployed and those things that were a little bit broader that were important to her and things she brought up a lot. Yeah. Like she was looking for all members of society, not just the ones that had money. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So that is her writings. Yeah. So, I mean, she did face a lot of criticism. So one of the first times I'm kind of going to backtrack just like a touch. Um, 
but so uh, she really comes into the public eye with the play L'Esclavage de Noir or whatever. It's um, Black Slavery or The Fortunate Shipwreck. I don't know what The Fortunate Shipwreck is, but I probably don't want to. So, yeah. Uh, so when it was staged at the Comédie Française in 1785, which was like a really big fucking deal, mm-hmm. um, the slave trade lobby mounted a press campaign against her play and literally like she had to take legal action to be like, you can't fucking do this. Like, it technically, I, I don't totally know the French free speech thing, but like, right. there really was, like, they were, she wasn't really necessarily speaking out against the government. She was speaking out against the institution. So, like, yeah. she had to take legal action and force the theater to stage the play. But it only had three performances because the slave trade lobby paid hecklers to sabotage it. And it was cool. like, it wasn't as successful as it maybe could have been. Although I was thinking about how this play was produced. Like, was blackface a thing? I mm, probably. I, I was afraid to look it up. I, I don't know if that is. I'm kind of mildly curious. I have a feeling that it wasn't in this done the same way that you find it in American theater. Yeah, um, I feel like it's very possible that they used white actors. I think it's more with masks as a yes. Yeah, I think it's a lot more mask and costume than yeah, it probably lacks the like American element of a minstrel show. Yes, that's exaggerating mm -hmm. features like the exaggerated lips or noses and things like that that we're mocking. I feel like it was more like how in Shakespeare plays men played all the women. That's that's kind of the vibe that I got because the minstrel, I I think could be real racist and bad. It could be. I don't think, and that's what's interesting is I think that this was such an, because I looked it up and I couldn't find anything. I just found stuff from American theater. And I really think that part of the reason why is because this was just not content that people fucking cared about. Do you know what I mean? Like she was writing about stuff that was so important to her and was definitely like very niche, but also very like specific to what her cause was. And I couldn't, I couldn't find any evidence of like what that would have looked like. So yeah. Um, she was also repeatedly attacked by people who believed that women didn't belong in the theater. So there was a, uh, <laughs> I'm just going to read what I wrote. So Abraham Joseph Baynard, an quote, influential actor and comedian who is a frequent performer of the time and who has not one fucking paragraph on Wikipedia. Like he literally has like a couple lines. So I don't know how influential he can actually be compared to our girl, but whatever. Uh, he is quoted as saying, Madame de Gouges is one of those women to whom one feels like giving razor blades as a present, who through their present pretensions lose the charming qualities of their sex. Every woman author is in a false position, regardless of her talent. Quote. Cool. Olomp's response was, I'm determined to be a success and I'll do it in spite of my enemies. Like, fuck yeah, queen. Anyway. Um. <clears throat> So, yeah, like you said, she's a passionate advocate for human rights. Uh, In 1791, she joins a society called the Society of the Friends of Truth, which sounds like a cult. Um, I don't think it was a cult. Well, it was. (laughs) I say that and I read my next line. I found I found a quote from her about um, about the actor's race. Oh, okay, okay. This is an article about Hamilton, but it has a quote from her. Oh, my God. Yes. Go. And so (laughs) let's see. 
So her play on slavery was denounced because its central role depicted a black man as a fully rounded individual capable of heroism and autonomy. So we're already doing Um, better than like white American theater. Yes. But um, the actors were white for the most part, it says, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. she insisted that those playing black roles attempted some form of realism. And the quote is, I have only one bit of advice to give to the actors of the comedy Francais. And it's the only favor I will ask of them in my life. They must adopt both the color and the dress of the Negro. That's her word, not Mm. mine. Never was there a more favorable time. And I hope that the performance of this drama will produce the effect that one can expect in favor of these victims of ambition. So it sounds like they were in blackface. Yeah. And I think that's like probably the best version at the time is her saying like, do it as realistically as possible like portray them as a real people yeah that's really interesting but that also seems like it was unusual it says it horrified the thespians who the actors themselves considered it really demeaning to persuade the audience that like all people were equal right wow so it sounds yeah. like that probably wasn't the common way of doing it and she's yeah. specifically saying for this play if you're going to be a white actor playing a black person do it as like genuinely and compassionately as possible and Mm. that's probably out of the norm for the time that's so interesting because it's so wrong still but it's like there was no alternative in a way like no see this sounds like like i'm justifying it i'm not i think it's just more like this was like the first time people had ever seen this performed on stage so like yeah i think it's like the best you could do at the time probably like there's no precedent this is the precedent actually yeah this is literally setting the precedent right so interesting okay yeah quick random google did that but (laughs) yeah no no i'm glad you did um i was just talking about how she might have been in a cult but you know Mm -hmm. your your contribution was way better than mine um are good so yeah so in 1791 she joined the society of the friends of truth uh, also known as the Social Club, which makes it even more culty. Um, and basically, of the Friends of Truth is pretty culty. It's sounding. pretty culty. I love it. Um, it was quote a mixture of revolutionary political club, the Masonic Lounge, and a literary salon. Uh, and lit. ultimately, it does sound pretty fucking cool. Um, and the ultimate goal was to establish equal political and legal rights for women. This is actually the same year that she writes the Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen. Nice. Um, Let's see. She also has a social contract pamphlet, which you mentioned her putting out pamphlets. Um, Mm -hmm. In the pamphlet, she actually proposes marriage based on gender equality. What a fucking idea. This is what I was thinking about before. So, um, unfortunately, Olamp was not immune to white saviorism in a way um, Mm -hmm. because saviorism and just white feminism. So, the violent revolt that would become the Haitian Revolution, this actually occurred now as opposed to earlier. I was mistaken. Don't come at me. Um, (laughs) And (laughs) the Haitian Revolution occurred as a result of the Declaration of Rights of Man and Citizen. And Olamp did not approve of violent revolution and published um, the play that I just mentioned with the preface in 1792, basically arguing that the slaves and the free people who responded to the horrors of, I'm sorry, the enslaved people and the free people who responded to the horrors of slavery with quote, barbaric and atrocious torture quote, in turn justified the behavior of the tyrants, which is just. So she's no. one of those people that like during the black lives matter protest posts the like Martin Luther King hate cannot drive out hate on Facebook. Yes. Yes. Cool. Uh huh. 
Yeah. She basically was like, yeah, she basically said, like, don't burn shit down. Don't be violent. This is why you were enslaved. Like, the fuck, lady? But, you know, nobody's perfect. And also, when we do badass babes, we have to talk about the ugly shit of them to others. Mm -hmm. We're not doing the history justice. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So she did also oppose the execution of Louis the Sixteenth, uh, which we're now starting to get into more of the French Revolution, uh, which took place on January twenty first, seventeen ninety three. Partly because she was opposed to capital punishment, which also seems very progressive of the time, uh, yeah. considering people went to like <laughs> fucking celebrate. Considering like <laughs> the main image of the French Revolution is a guillotine. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, and partially because she preferred a constitutional monarchy, which I think is very interesting. She actually yeah. liked the constitutional monarchy. Um, so in December of 1792, when Louis the Sixteenth was about to be put on trial, she wrote to the National Assembly and offered to defend him, which caused outrage among many deputies. Her letter basically argued that he had been duped and he was guilty as a king, but innocent as a man. Basically like saying... This fucking jabroni doesn't know what he's doing as a ruler, but like he hasn't committed any crimes against like humanity of being a person. Yeah, that's an interesting and concept that like what you did is against the rules for your job. For your not, job, I guess that's yeah. similar to impeachment in some cases. It basically is, and this is like the first time that we've seen something like this hardcore in Europe in a while. Like all yeah. of the royals throughout the fucking European like countries are like holy shit they can kill us like it's like yeah and like the way that he was treated again there's a lot to say about louis the 16th and even marie antoinette and were they garbage rulers yes were they garbage people i don't know if that's fair to say i think that they were just really terrible at their jobs um But basically, her preference for a constitutional monarch uh, was met with a lot of anger and criticism for many of the hardline Republicans that were in the National Assembly. And just to clarify, the Republicans are people who want a republic, not Republicans like American Republicans. Um, And so she basically became associated with the Gironde faction, which was less radical and targeted by the radical um factions of basically this is when the revolution starts to get even fucking crazier um and after louis the 16th is executed she becomes very wary of the guy robespierre who's going to take over and he is going to become like oh my god he's gonna go off the fucking rails we should probably do an episode on him too i don't know what he would fit into but he's bonkers um and she openly criticizes him in letters um basically saying like your violence and killings are like fucking pointless like this is literally not what this is supposed to be which is going to get her into some trouble so as the revolution progresses she becomes a lot more vehement in her writings especially against um those those in power specifically robespierre so on june 2nd 1793 the jacobin of the montagard faction imprison all of these prominent members of the opposite basically political party um, and they're quickly sent to the guillotine several months later so her poster called the three urns or the salvation of the fatherland by an aerial traveler which let's just talk about these titles for a hot second they all sound like um suf jan stevens songs oh my god (laughs) like oh my god i just love them i just like that they're so specific yeah that's exactly what it is like they all have two titles like well if you don't like this one it's also called this yes (laughs) like you have an option whichever one you prefer go for that um so she 
created this poster in 1793, and this is ultimately what leads to her arrest. So the piece basically pictured like a vote for a choice between three different types of government. So, quote, the first, a unitary republic, the second, a federalist government, or the third, a constitutional monarchy. So the piece, I guess, basically is like depicting you have three options. Like we are the people that are now in control. We've taken control. Right. Like we don't just have to do whatever the fuck everyone else says. Like we kind of, we can have this argument. Um, and the reason she's arrested is because there was a law in the revolution that made it a capital offense for anyone to publish a book or pamphlet that encouraged reestablishing the monarchy in any format. Interesting. Yeah. So after That's she like was arrested. That's not what you expect her to be arrested for. No, she just like she was arrested for like a political piece. And the reason why it was illegal was because it mentioned the option of going back to a constitutional monarchy, which I'm 99.9% positive they eventually do after Napoleon. But mm-hmm. um, so after Olamp's arrested, uh, her house is searched for evidence. And when they couldn't find any, she actually voluntarily led to that led them to a storehouse where she kept her papers and was like, here you go. Here's like all this shit that I've written. Um, we've got another, <laughs> we've got another two titled play. Yeah. So it's an unfinished production titled La France Salvi ou le Tyrone des Trons, which is France preserved, comma, or the tyrant dethroned. Um, and in the first act, it's only the first act and the half like remain. Marie Antoinette is planning defense strategies to keep like the crumbling monarchy and is confronted by revolutionary forces, including Olump herself. So this is self-insert fan fiction. Yes, it's so great. I thought the same thing. I was like, oh yeah, it's like I did this shit for Harry Potter for fucking sure. So who's gonna show up and tell her? (laughs) I'll do it. (laughs) Yes. So the first act ends with her basically reproving the queen for having seditious intentions and lecturing her about how she should lead her people. Basically like, you're not a good queen. We're gonna teach you how to be one. Okay. Um, Both Olamp and her uh, persecutor prosecutor (laughs) used the play as evidence in her trial. And the prosecutor claims that like her depictions of the queen, like threatened to stir up sympathy and support for the Royalists. Whereas she's stating that the play is actually showing that she's always been a supporter of the revolution. So it's interesting because the prosecutor's like, look, look, she wants everyone to feel bad for Marie Antoinette. And she's like, nah, bro, did you fucking read it? I'm trying to tell her that she's doing a shit job and like, we need change. So, to make a very long story short, she spent three months in jail without an attorney. She tried to defend herself. This is so fucking weird. So, she was actually denied her legal right to a lawyer by the presiding judge in her case on the grounds that she was more than capable of representing herself, which seems to have been based on her tendency to represent herself in her writings. Interesting. So, she didn't forego the lawyer. They were like, no, you don't get one. Correct. She was like, okay, well, where's my legal counsel? They're like, well, you seem like a smart enough lady based on your fucking writing. So you you can defend yourself. Yeah. Yes, (laughs) exactly. Yep. Um, And so with the help of her friends, she actually was able to publish two texts while in jail um, in which she talks about her like interrogations and um, when she starts to like condemn the terror. So Mm -hmm. that's like the the great terror and that's when everyone's getting like you know guillotined and shit right 
Um, her son, Pierre, was suspended from his office as a vice general and head of a battalion after she was arrested. And she'd actually worked really hard to get that position for him. Um, and then on November 2nd, no, 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 I'd like to back up because you said oh, she God. worked really hard to get the position for him. But this said she. Oh, but, the but she paid. She did. But but she had to also. <laughs> well, she did. I mean, that's not fucking cheap. Fifteen hundred livres. I mean, like, bitch, do you have fifteen hundred livres? I have. But no she clue. did. I could. She- <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe. Probably not. I probably don't. But it was also because um, so she did work hard to acquire the position financially, but she also had to um, kind of negotiate to get him higher up because he wasn't actually well enough off to earn a position like that. So okay. it was a combination of like, I'm a pay people, but I'm also going to have to like negotiate his way up for him because once again you know women are doing the job of everyone right so (laughs) on november 2nd 1793 she wrote to him quote i die my dear son a victim of my i oh fuck idolatry this word came back for me are you kidding me son of a bitch Oh, okay. She wrote to him, quote, I die, my dear son, a victim of my idolatry for the fatherland and for the people. Under the the specious mask of republicanism, uh, her enemies have brought me remorselessly to the scaffold. So basically, like, they're killing me. Um, (laughs) uh, The next day, the Revolutionary Tribunal sentenced her to death, and she was executed for seditious behavior and attempting to reinstate the monarchy, and her body was disposed of at the Madeline Cemetery. Uh, she was decapitated via guillotine, and her last moments were depicted by an anonymous Parisian who kept a chronicle of events. And I'm going to read this whole thing because it actually is pretty beautiful. So here we go. Okay, so... <clears throat> Yesterday, at seven o'clock in the evening, a most extraordinary person called Olympe de Gouges, who held the imposing title of woman of letters, was taken to the scaffold, while all of Paris, while admiring her beauty, knew that she didn't even know her alphabet. She approached the scaffold with a calm and serene expression on her face, and forced the guillotine's furies, which had driven her to this place of torture, to admit that such courage and beauty had never been seen before. That woman had thrown herself in the revolution, body and soul. But having quickly perceived how atrocious the system adopted by the Jacobins was, she chose to retrace her steps. She attempted to unmask the villains through the literary productions which she had printed and put up. They never forgave her, and she paid for her carelessness with her head. I don't understand what the fuck that means. No. Like, here's a woman called the woman of letters. Also, she doesn't she know doesn't her letters. Al- yeah, that part confused me, but okay. Even though she, like, has been writing, like, for fucking years. Yeah. So that is the life and bio of Olympe de Gouges. Um, I know you have a little bit more about, like, her political legacy. I do. And I think it's so interesting because so much of her political legacy is about, like, her writings and her, like, feminism. But also mm-hmm. they killed her because they were like... Oh no, you like the king too much. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's so interesting. Like, you're too radical, but also, like, not radical enough. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, But so her ultimate execution was meant to be a warning to other women who dared to be, like, politically active in general. Right? That was really what they were trying to do. And so there was actually, not long after, um, there was people who were basically saying, like, women should be reminded of, quote, the impudent 
Alam Degouge, who was the first woman to start up women's political clubs, who abandoned the cares of her homes to meddle in the affairs of the Republic, and whose head fell under avenging blade of the law. So they really mm. tried to make her like a cautionary tale. Um, and <laughs> That's so interesting. After her death, the political establishment like characterized her in a certain way that wasn't necessarily true. Like, it was widely believed that she had helped found the Society of Revolutionary Republican Women, which was not true at all. She had no role in it. Okay. Um, and, like, they would say she called for women to abandon her their homes, but that was not true. Um, and so they kind of used her as this figurehead for things that weren't necessarily what she stood for, but she was politically active and vocal, and so it was easy to point to her. Uh, meanwhile, the two women who did start the Society of the Revolutionary Republic of Women, Republican women, were never executed. But she was. Um, <laughs> That's w- ridiculous. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's so stupid. Sorry. I don't know why I laughed so hard. I just think that's so no, fucking absurd. Dumb. Well, yeah. then, in the year after her death, there are a number of other women who are executed. Um, but it kind of gets out of hand where enough women start to say the same thing she was saying. And again, that's more on the gender equality side than the like constitutional monarchy piece. Right. Um, it, it starts to spread across the country to the point where they're like, okay, we can't execute every woman who's saying this. Mm-hmm. And um, one year after, sorry, one year after her declaration of the rights of women, you see, Mary Wollstonecraft publishing Vindication of the Rights of Women. I love Mary Wollstonecraft. She's another one we should do sometime. Yeah. So it basically started to spread throughout France to like write about women and their lack of rights. Mm -hmm. And from there, it spread to other countries. So American women began to refer to themselves as a citizeness. So citizen for us, like in English, is a gender neutral term. Mm, There's no okay. f- male and female version, but they would call right. themselves a, a citess or a citizeness mm-hmm. in order to denote like a specifically female citizen. And you start to see women like taking to the streets for equality and different things like that in America, in Ireland, in the UK. So it kind of takes off then. And I don't think it's all attributed to to Alam de Gouge, but timing wise, that's when it starts to spread. Um, also, the same year she was executed, there was a pamphlet published called On the Marriage of Two Celebrated Widows. It was published anonymously, mm. um, and the widows it refers to are America and France. So, it's quote, two oh, celebrated man. widows, ladies of America and France, after having repudiated their husbands on account of their ill treatment, conceived of the design of living together in the strictest union and friendship. Oh, so they're, oh, weird. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. So basically, way... it's like looking at America and France in a lesbian relationship. Yes. Fuck, mm-hmm. I actually love that. Right, it's great. Um, here's where a man sucks. Um, so after what? She got, <laughs> I know. We after don't speak she... poorly of men on this podcast. No. Con. <laughs> her son Pierre Aubry signs a letter officially denying his endorsement for her political legacy. Huh. And he tries to change her name in all the records to Marie Aubry. Um, like her legal name, but her pen uh, name enders. And so I was like, although she was That's her son? That's her son. And I guess Fuck like he that. lost his job and shit, right? So maybe he's yeah. like, no, no, it's not me. Um, 
but he literally like signs a formal letter saying like oh no she sucked thanks oh she fucking birthed you whatever and so kind of while she was alive she was pretty well known at least in certain circles and she published all this stuff that was still available but she really becomes kind of largely forgotten um through the rest of like the people who were a lot her contemporaries right she's not a really persisting name where everyone still talks about her mm-hmm. but in the mid-1980s a political biography is published about her and that kind of leads to a resurgence of historians starting to read her stuff and her being considered an important figure so for like a couple hundred years no one really thought about her until this um which is so interesting because you would think that like and again i don't have a french education so i don't actually know if they do this but i would imagine in the public schools like you would teach about like important women in history and like the fact that she probably wasn't even a topic is mind-blowing i mean for us in america okay fine you can talk about the french revolution for three days like don't have time for that but i wonder if in france if anyone ever like studied her yeah i mean it everything was she was largely forgotten and then there was um it was a french man named olivier blanc in the 1980s who wrote about her and kind of Mm -hmm. brought her back into the public eye and since then she's been considered really important so in march 2004 they actually proclaim um a junction of a bunch of streets in france as like Mm. the um plus Place Olympe de Gouge. Yeah, it's like a plaza <laughs> named after her, essentially. Okay. Um, cool. And often what they do in those cases where they're naming these like areas of France after a famous person or a historical person is they may bury them there or bring their, their ashes or whatever the case might be. Um, but she basically was just one of a bunch of victims of the reign of terror. And so her remains aren't anywhere that we know of, right? There's not like a here lies Marie Aubrey, I guess, according to her son, but, um, they were lost in communal graves. So they did a ceremonial reburial. Okay. But not an actual one. No one knows where her actual remains are. That's so sad. I know. That, like, bums me out. I feel like even if you are a shitty fucking person, like, at the very least, your body should be treated like a like a body. See, I don't... Do maybe you know what I mean? Some, like, yes, but I also... Maybe this is my weird, like, not being raised religious, like, heathen shit. <laughs> that I'm just like, I don't know. I'm dead. What do I care? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel... I, I, that's fair. I mean, I don't know. I actually think of... um. Oh my god, I'm so fucking weird that I'm even going to say this. I think of the play Oedipus okay, and his daughter Antigone, who had like her own play written about her, and she's like, she gets in trouble for burying, I think it's her brothers, because in the Greek belief system, <clears throat> if your body is not buried like or treated like it should be, like your soul just wanders the earth and it's like religious but it's like spiritual and i kind of feel like i always go back to that like if your body is just like disrespected like that your soul just like doesn't have a place to go which like is a bummer yeah i mean i get for a lot of people it like obviously matters very much yeah i was like i don't know i'm dead whatever (laughs) dead is dead yeah yeah i'm not gonna know (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, so that's um, yeah, that's Olympe de Gouge. Yeah, that's our our friend. She's uh bad and gouge, so mm-hmm. <laughs> sorry. No, bad and gouge is good. <laughs> um. I don't. I don't think I could say anything funnier than that. So I think I'm out. I think yeah, I'm done no, for the episode. Gotta, we're done. Bye. We gotta end on a strong note. Peace. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Seriously. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to What the History. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WTHistoryPod. If you'd like to email us, you can do that at WTHistoryPodcast at gmail.com, and we'd love to hear feedback or episode ideas or anything else you have to say. You can support us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash WTHistoryPodcast and get exclusive access to even more nerdy stuff. Don't forget to tune in every Thursday when new episodes are released, and we will see you next time.